Well, this is a really interesting narrative. I mean, even for the children, this is very cool. The people of Israel are now finally crossing the Jordan River. And uh, some of you are familiar with the Old Testament narrative and how they're about to go attack Jericho. And the walls of Jericho will eventually come tumbling down and the people of Israel will begin conquering the promised land which the Lord has given them. But here is the first time that they cross over westward from the east side of the Jordan. And what's really awesome about this story is they don't just build a bridge, nor do they find an easy place to cross, but God does something supernatural here in this story. God makes the water of the river stop flowing. We don't really have a comparable river in Barbados. But you imagine a day when the waves are really coming in quite hard and you imagine just the Lord just pushes the water back and stops it. A wall of water piling up, you know, maybe a kilometer out from the beach, from the coastline. Something like that, which is clearly and obviously not a natural phenomenon, but supernatural, is what God does here. He makes the river dry ground that the people may pass through. Of course, this is reminiscent of his parting of the Red Sea, which even the Lord himself instructs the people to tell their children in Joshua chapter 4 and verse 23, that the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. This is something very, very similar. The people of Jericho, we know from Joshua chapter 2, were, were trembling in fear of the Israelites because they had heard that God had parted the Red Sea and brought them through the Red Sea, and had, which was obviously a miracle, and then had allowed them to overcome Sihon and Og, which it seems was also something of a miracle. It was a real David and Goliath battle, if I can put it that way. And so the people of Jericho were trembling. They knew that even though Israel was on the other side of the Jordan and there was this river between the people of Jericho and the people of Israel, they knew that this Jordan River really was no obstacle for the God of Israel, Yahweh. And sure enough, what happens is that God parts the river just as God had parted the Red Sea so many years earlier. The passage we just read, Joshua 3 and Joshua 4, tells us that after the people crossed through, the river returned to its normal levels, which at that time of the year was overflowing its banks. And the reason why it tells us this is to signify that this was a supernatural phenomenon. That it wasn't just that they happened to come to the Jordan River at a time when it Basically, maybe there had been a drought or something and it had kind of dried up and the people crossed over and as history sometimes gets embellished that, you know, well, the Lord stopped the river for us. No, it tells us that it was overflowing its banks. The Lord stopped the water and then as soon as the people crossed over, it was overflowing its banks again. It's telling us very clearly here 
that this was a supernatural incident, that this was a supernatural issue. There is another, I think, pragmatic detail in that the people are to follow the ark of God in order that it may lead them, but they're to follow at a distance of what works out to be approximately one kilometer, if we can just do rough math. Some people make theological significance of this, but I tend to agree with those commentators who think that it's probably more of a pragmatic issue. You imagine that there was a, a crowd of 600,000 people trying to follow an ark which was 10 feet in front of them. There would be great difficulty just in the mechanics of that. Whereas if the ark was far, far out ahead of everybody, the whole assembly could follow and there would be time. Just like steering a big ship, it takes time to turn one way or the other. This way the ark could turn and the large crowd which followed could have time to adjust accordingly also. So I think that's what's going on with the pragmatic distance between the crowd and the ark. So basically the, the ark sets out as the priests put their foot in the river. It's supernaturally dried up. The priests walk to the middle of the river and they stay there while the whole company crosses over. And we know that it took pretty much all night for the people of Israel to cross over the Red Sea. So we're going to presume that it was, this was approximately a day's work. Uh, they set out early in the morning and this was presumably a whole day's work of crossing over the Jordan River here. The priests are standing in the middle, everybody crosses over and then when they finish crossing over they gather stones from the midst of the river to make a memorial which they set up about six miles to the west just on the outskirts of Jericho at a place called Gilgal. Joshua also sets up a second memorial in the river at the place where the priests stood. And then the priests are commanded to come up out of the river, uh, the riverbed, I should say, and then the waters return. This is basically what happens in this story. Oh, I should also say, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, remember the two and a half tribes that asked for an inheritance on the east, they send over 40,000 armed men in fulfillment of their vow. There was, apparently there was a, approximately 130,000 armed men from these two and a half tribes and only 40 cross over. But there's nothing mentioned here about this being any default on their part. In fact, the opposite, the way that it is put to us here, it says that they sent over this many people as Moses had told them which seems to indicate that there was compliance. So most likely what happened was that Joshua only requested 40,000 of them to go across. We know that as it was with the, with the battle that Gideon was involved in, they started with 32,000 men and God whittled it down and whittled it down to 300 and then delivered them from the hand of the Midianites with a lesser number. So presumably under the guidance of God, Joshua decided we don't need the whole 120,000. In fact, it would be prudent to leave 90,000 on the east to guard the cities and the women and children who are left behind. Send over 40 and we'll consider the agreement fulfilled here. So this is basically what is going on here in this passage. Now, two reasons why this miracle happened. We have understood what happened in this reading of it and then this brief review. Two reasons why it happened. 
1 is given to us in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 7. God does this miracle to exalt Joshua so that the people may know that as God was with Moses, so he will be with Joshua. This is just a very pragmatic thing. The hearts of people tend to be concerned or at least uncertain every time there's a change of leadership of any sort. So anytime a new political party comes in, anytime a church gets a new pastor, anytime there's a new commander of an army, new coach of a sports team, whatever, everybody wonders, well, what's it going to be like now under the new regime? And likewise, people would have been wondering, it's human nature, what is it going to be like now under Joshua? We know that under Moses, God gave us water from the rock, and God gave us manna to eat, and so on and so forth. What's it going to be like under Joshua? And so God says, I'm going to exalt you in the eyes of the people so that they'll know that just as I was with Moses, so I'm going to be with you. This is the first reason that we're given in this text. I think it's basically pragmatic. This is God shepherding His people and endorsing and vindicating Joshua so that he can effectively do his job. Um, But I think that this is really the secondary reason why God does this miracle. The first and primary reason that God does this miracle is given to us in Joshua chapter 4 and verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. When the memorials are created and instructions are given about what should we say when the children ask about these memorials, there's nothing about Joshua. Which is why I say that the Joshua thing is secondary. They're not to rehash and say, just as God was with Moses, so God was with Joshua. That's what these stones mean. Rather, there's nothing about Joshua when it comes to the memorial. So that was a pragmatic thing that was necessary for that particular generation. But when, when for generations to come, these memorial stones are seen and inquired about by all the children of Israel, the people are to rehash what God did for them so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and so that they themselves, the Israelites, may fear the Lord their God forever. So, so I think that that is, even though it appears second in the text, that actually seems to be the primary reason why God did this here. Which leads us very naturally to notable details which we may apply to our lives. First, is that God wants to be seen as doing the leading. God wants to be seen as doing the providing. God wants to be seen as doing the delivering, the saving, the rescuing, the crossing over, the passing over, the establishing, so on and so forth. He says elsewhere in Scripture, My glory I share with no other. You might remember way back in Numbers chapter 10, when Moses appeals to Hobab to come with him. And he says... Come with us, Numbers chapter 10 and verse 31. For you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. Moses feels like if Hobab doesn't go, they're not going to know where to go. 
If Hobab doesn't come to guide them, pilgrims through this barren land, they're not going to have a guide. But what do we see God does in that passage in Numbers chapter 10? Hobab actually agrees to go with them, it seems, after some prodding. But interestingly, Numbers 10, 33 tells us, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. So the interesting thing here is that Moses does twist Hobab's arm and Hobab decides to come. But interestingly, the Lord insists that it's not going to be Hobab out scouting and finding the next place for them to rest, but it's going to be the Ark of the Covenant. God does the same thing here. He sends the Ark of the Covenant out ahead of them. He puts the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of His presence among them, into the water to dry out the waters. He creates a memorial. And when the kids ask about the memorial, they're not to talk about Joshua. They're not to talk about their own exploits. They're to talk about how God caused the water to be dried up. God wants to be seen to be doing the leading, to be doing the guiding, to be doing the scouting, to be doing the protecting, to be doing the providing, so on and so forth. God is working in Israel for Israel. And let me repeat that. For Israel, they are, as we talked about this morning, beneficiaries of God's benevolence. And yet, God is working for Israel, ultimately not for Israel, but ultimately for His own glory. God wants to bear His mighty right arm in the rescue and the deliverance of His people so that in generations to come, the things that He does redound to His glory. This should inform the way that we think about, talk about any sort of Christian accomplishment. This should inform the way that we talk about sanctification. This should inform the way we talk about church planting. This should should inform the way we talk about evangelization. This should inform the way that we talk about even our leaders. There was an incident which happened a few months ago in which some pretty grandiose things were said about uh, John MacArthur during the introduction uh, of one of these large conference sessions. And there was somewhat of a controversy about it. And some people were like, well, this is much ado about nothing. We're just honoring a man who's obviously been used powerfully of God and nothing wrong with it. But there were others on the other side, and I would agree with them, who would see it as the, the, the... lavishness of the praise that was put upon MacArthur just seemed excessive and seemed actually to detract from the glory of God. What, what, who, not to knock John MacArthur, he's a far better preacher than I am and a far more godly and mature man of God than me. But what, is, what, what am I? And, and what is John MacArthur? Who, who, is, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Right? As Paul says many years later in Corinthians, so-and-so planted, so-and-so watered, but God gives the growth. You realize that all the success, all of the salvation that God has worked through Grace Community Church is not ultimately through MacArthur. And this is not to, this is not to disparage MacArthur. 
where I'm generally very positive about him. But this is simply to say that without the Holy Spirit, without God, not one soul would have been saved under John MacArthur's ministry. Nobody would have been built up. Grace to you would be nothing. And I'm sure John MacArthur, if he was here, would say amen to that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to throw any shade here. Right? We need to think about, talk about, act in a way that shows that all the glory really belongs to God. In the way that we talk about people, church planting, growth and holiness, sanctification, whatever. Really, it's God's doing. And God wants it to be seen to have been His doing. This is the first point of application tonight. Secondly, we see the instruction in the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 5. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves. Two things about this. The people were told tomorrow is going to be a day of a great spiritual work that God is going to be doing. And you need to consecrate yourselves for that day. To consecrate basically means to declare something sacred. Basically means to, it's pretty much what we would talk about as definitive sanctification. To be set apart for a holy use. Now there are two, two points of application related to this. One is, it was actually okay for the people not to be consecrated on the day that Joshua told them, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow God is going to do such and such. Not every day is a sacred day in the sense that uh, it needs to be set apart entirely to a holy use as opposed to a common use. There's a, a time and a place Six days shall you labor and do all of your common work. Right? Not every day is a holy day. Not every day is to be consecrated. Not every day do you have to devote yourself to uh, sacred duties entirely. And so the first thing we should know is that there was, there's, no, there's no hint of rebuke here. When Joshua says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, the Lord's going to do a mighty work. There's no rebuke of the people in that they should have been consecrated already. And so there is a implicit legitimization of legitimate common things in the fact that we don't always have to be consecrated. And this helps us as we think then about the idea of consecration. The flip side of that is that there is a time and a place to be consecrated. There are days which are holy. There are Moments in which we have to be set apart for holy work. There are moments in which the common is out of place and we need to push it aside and defer it and so on and so forth. Just as there is a time to say not now to this, that and the other thing, there is a time to say not now to the common. So though the common is legitimate and what we, are, what we ought to be after as Christians is not to be praying and reading the Bible and explicitly worshiping and thinking about doctrine and evangelizing and discipling every second of the day. As Martin Luther said, if you're a shoemaker, 
the best way to glorify God is not to sew little crosses on the shoes, but to make good shoes. Likewise, if you're a surgeon, you should be really focused, intensely focused, as you operate upon somebody's body. It's actually good in that moment not to be thinking about, you know, what does Romans 11 teach about this and, this and that, the, the, you know, solving doctrinal mysteries. If you're operating on someone's shoulder, focus, man. Focus in on that common task and do it. Do it with all your might. But even for the surgeon, there's a time and a place to say not now to the common. And to say this moment is sacred. This time is sacred. Right? I'm going to devote myself now to sacred duties. There's a time, therefore, to take the business phone call. There's a time to answer work emails. There's a time to go labor in your common secular vocation. There's a time to watch sports. There's a time to enjoy good music. There's a time for all of these common things. But there's also a time to shut off the common world and get on your knees in prayer. There's a time to say, no, I'm not taking any calls right now. In fact, my phone is on silent because I'm going to spend some time in the Word. There's a time to say, no, I can't do it that day because I'm going to be in church. There is a time in which it's legitimate not to be consecrated, but there is a time in which it is legitimate and necessary also to consecrate yourselves for the Lord is doing a spiritual work and a powerful work among you. For the Israelites, of course, along with the spiritual consecration was ceremonial consecration as well and various rituals observed with cleanliness and whatnot which are not applicable to us under the new covenant as these were types and shadows but the spiritual work of spiritual consecration is still something that we ought to think about now here's another applicable detail here and it's a small little thing that you could easily pass over in chapter 4 and verse 10 Right at the very end, we read this. The people passed over in haste. Now, just take, a, just take a second here and just speculate in your own heart. Why did the people pass over in haste? Now, John Gill tends to look with rose-colored glasses upon the patriarchs and upon the saints and the people of God. And he's generally extremely charitable and extremely uh, positive when he talks about people's motivations. I'm a little more cynical than John Gill. Turns out Matthew Henry is also. <laughs> John Gill says, the people were not afraid. The people knew that God was with them and that God had done this mighty thing and there was no fear among them. I tend to think, look, these people had seen a river that was overflowing its banks just hours before. And here they are in the riverbed. Though it's dry at the moment, it's stressful to be in the riverbed, I would think. Imagine, for example, if you, if you saw a very busy area of railroad track. I, I think of Union Station in Toronto, for example. 
where there are several rail lines going different directions from Union Station. And you have, you have long sections with 10 or 12 or 15 tracks side by side. And there's trains this way and that way and so on and so forth. Look, even if I look both ways and I see, all right, there's no trains coming. And then I begin making my way across this, these you know, 12 or 15 train tracks. I know how fast those things can move. I've seen how, how quick they come whipping through there. And I've seen the movies where people get their shoes stuck in the train tracks, okay? All right, I know what can happen. And you know, I'm well aware that maybe Lassie won't come running out of the side to bite my shoelace and rescue me. Look, I would be stressed crossing over those train tracks because I know that even though I've seen clear at the time, this is where the trains usually come. And likewise, this is where the river usually flows. I am quite certain that some people passed over in haste because they were afraid. Because the river had been dried up, but they wondered, but for how long? Some people doubt the power of God. Some people doubt the benevolence of God. Some people are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. They have very low and frowardly thoughts of God. And they're always saying, well, sure, God gave me a good day, but what about tomorrow? You know, yes, God has been merciful to me this month, but what about next month? Yes, all the way my Savior has led me so far, but what is God going to do with me next year, right? And some people just have a hard time taking it to heart that God is really our Father, that He really cares about us, that He really loves us, and that He will really do what He says He's going to do. Some people feel like God may be playing a nasty trick and stopping the water just long enough for you to get in, like Pharaoh's army. And they see God not as being for them, but trying to get them on a technicality, trying to deceive them, so on and so forth. This is why some people struggle with assurance of salvation, by the way, because the gospel is very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And part of truly believing is repenting. Repentance, I think, is a subset of genuine faith, which is why elsewhere in Scripture it says, repent and believe. It's not a condition that you've got to meet, repentance, but it's if you actually believe the way that the Bible talks about believe, then you're going to change. But some people wonder, do I believe sincerely enough? Do I believe thoroughly enough? Have I repented thoroughly enough? And, well, a certain amount of self-examination is good and is right in the Scripture puts a certain amount of examination upon us. Some people believe as sincerely as they can, and they're repenting as thoroughly as they can, but they're afraid God's going to get them on a technicality on the last day. And that somehow God is going to be looking for reasons to disqualify their faith, and disqualify their repentance, and disown them. But the reality is, God wants to save God wants His people in this story to cross the Jordan. God wants people to trust in Jesus. God wants people to turn from their sins and cross over. God is benevolent. God is merciful. 
God is gracious. Some people have a hard time believing that. And they follow God with fear and trepidation, which is not always warranted. Sometimes it's due to our own low thoughts of God and His benevolence and His faithfulness towards us. We feel like when Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out that He's somehow crossing His fingers behind His back or something. And it's not quite as plain as He puts it. That when He says, come to me all who are thirsty, when He says, come all who are hungry, you're tired, come and I will give you rest. We think that there must be more to it than that and there's some kind of some kind of trick. But listen, there's no trick. Hungry sinners go to Jesus and eat. Thirsty sinners go to Jesus and drink. Needy people go to Jesus. Tired people go to Jesus. Sinners go to Jesus for forgiveness. God is not trying to get you on a technicality. All He wants for you to do is turn from your sin and come to Jesus. He, he wants to rescue you from your weakness. He wants to rescue you from your finiteness. He wants to rescue you from your sin that makes it hard to keep coming to Jesus. Coming back to Jesus. God is not the kind of God that would tell His people, here, cross over, I'll stop the water for you, and then send the water crashing down on them. And He is not the kind of God that would tell people, come to Jesus. And then when people try, He's like, ha, I've got you. God's not that kind of God. God is benevolently disposed towards His people. And when He stops the water here, it's genuinely for their good. And when He tells us to come to Jesus, it's genuinely for our good. But some people are afraid. We need to work on that and ask God to help us understand and perceive His heart towards us sinners. But listen, I don't think everyone who crossed over in haste was afraid. Look, I was telling you at Leslie's funeral how it seemed like she sprinted towards the end. You know? She ran that last bit of her race with haste. But it wasn't because she was afraid. She was was growing in her love for God and she was running towards God not because she was afraid but but out of love she was wooed towards God in that last couple of months in the hospital listen some people I guarantee believe the promises that God was going to give them this land west of the Jordan and they had been wandering around for years decades even waiting for this moment to cross the Jordan River and go westward into Canaan to take possession of the land that God gave them. And some of them crossed over in haste because they were like, this is the day. This is the day that we've been waiting for. God has been talking about bringing us into this land for so long. And He is faithful. And He will do what He has promised. There's no falling word with God. God loves us. God cares about us. God does what He says He's going to do. And I'm going across that Jordan River with haste. Some people were afraid, but some people were eager for Canaan. I'm sure. 
everyone had to follow. And likewise, we all have to follow Jesus. Whether we follow with fear and trepidation, or whether we follow with a confident faith and an assurance, trusting in Jesus and following Jesus ends up with us where we need to be. God saves the strong in faith. God saves the weak in faith. God saves the giant of the faith who has a strong and robust confidence in Jesus. And God saves the little weakling of faith who just barely but sincerely trusts in Christ and lays hold of Him with the most feeble of fingertips. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. But let me ask you this. On the day that they crossed over this Jordan on dry ground, who do you think had a good day? And who do you think had a bad day? The people who were stressed out the whole time they were crossing the river? The people who were strong and confident that God was now fulfilling His promises? Look, for some people, that was like the best day of the last 40 years. <laughs> and for other people, it was like, oh boy, this is it. This is it. Surely we're doomed. And they were probably anxious most of the morning or, or the afternoon until they themselves, after this long line of people, finally had their opportunity to go down into the riverbed and up the other side and felt themselves safe on the west side of the Jordan River. Those who were weak in faith probably had a very stressful day. Listen, it's not always about salvation, whether you're saved or not, in terms of how you walk with God. Say, can someone weak in faith be saved? Yeah, someone weak in faith can be saved. But it, there's things like even just how much joy we have, how much peace, how much of, of these things that we experience as we make our way through life and learning to trust more fully in God and learning to understand more of who He is and believe more of His heart and His disposition towards us. These things make our journey all the sweeter. Whereas if we stay stunted in an immature place, we may still be saved, but we may struggle all the while what we're following. So I would say a point of application here is that as you follow, as God leads together with God's people, as He leads us and guides us, pilgrims through this barren land, learn to follow with faith. Learn to walk with confidence in who God is and who He has promised to be for us and what He has promised to do for us. And it will make a difference, if not to the destination, to the journey. Next applicable detail is the memorialization of this event. Twice in Joshua chapter 4, we're told what to tell the children when they ask in time to come. What do these stones mean? 
Joshua chapter 4, verse 6. The children are said, it's said that the children are going to ask. And then in Joshua chapter 4 and verse 21, it's said that the children are going to ask. And again, the people are to rehearse the acts of God here. People are to explain that the hand of the Lord is mighty. God institutes that memorial so that credit would be dispersed where credit is due. That God would get the glory for this passing over. That the priests would not be viewed as shamans who have the ability to manipulate this material universe by some sort of dark magic or or even white magic. God wants it to be known that it was Him who brought the people across. He wants all the peoples of the earth, those who know Yahweh trustingly and savingly, and those who don't, and worship other false gods. He still wants them to know who He is and what He's done. He wants the name of Yahweh to be famous in all the earth and to be seen as glorious in all the earth. There is value in the proclamation of the glory of Yahweh even if people don't believe. Even if we just literally tell people how great our God is, right there, right there, at that point, there's something inherently good about that that the Lord is pleased with. The fame of His name. And so... The memorial is set up in order that credit may be given where credit is due. That all the peoples may know. But more than that, there is also this statement, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And the you in that verse is the people of Israel. Those who already belong to Yahweh in some sense. And so it's for the people outside whose God is not yet Yahweh, that they may know who Yahweh is and that Yahweh is great. But it's also so that those who already belong to Yahweh will fear Him forever. And the sense of fear here is not, it's not the terror, like I just described, of those crossing the Jordan doubting the goodness of Yahweh. It's not fear that Yahweh is going to betray us or drop us. But it's, it's an awe and a reverence for Yahweh, and that they would continue to worship and follow Yahweh and not deviate from following Him and not exchange Him for other gods which are really no gods at all. God wants this memorial to be set up for the sake of those who are not yet His people, but also so that His people will remember what He has done for them so that they will be strengthened in the present to continue to follow Him. And so that they will, in the future, persist in following Him. So that they will follow Him forever. Now, this concept of memorialization doesn't necessarily mean that you should go home and get out the 
cardstock and make little crafts with Bible verses or something to remind yourself and your kids what God has done. It's not wrong, obviously, but it's not, I wouldn't put it to you like this, like this passage, this application of this passage is that you ought to go home and do that, that God expects you to go home and do that. God hasn't instituted those kinds of memorials. But what memorial has God instituted for us? Now we're not obviously talking about a pile of stones in this place or that. But the memorial that God has set up for us is do this in remembrance of me. It's the Lord's Supper. This is the memorial that God has instituted for us. He has instituted that in order that those outside who are not yet God's people would see what God has done for His people. That He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus came to die for us. And the Lord's table proclaims that death until Jesus returns. So that the whole world, whether they believe or not, will know. The Christians are the people that Jesus came for, to die for, to rescue them. This is what God has done for the Christians. To proclaim that and to memorialize that is part of what God has instituted this table for. But also, it's so that we will continue to walk with Him. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And as I've said before, it's not like we're literally going to forget Jesus. You know, who is Jesus? Oh, I remember hearing something about Him a long time ago, but I can't really remember. That's not going to happen. You know, all things being equal. We're not going to literally forget Jesus. Or, or, you know, we're not going to forget Calvary. What happened again? Man, something about a cross, but it's kind of vague in my mind. Like, that's not going to happen. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, it's not so that we will just literally, intellectually remember. It's because our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts are prone to forget. And so this memorial is given in remembrance of Christ in order that we may be kept near the cross and that there would be our glory ever till our ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. In other words, it's so that we will continue walking with Jesus, so that we will remember what He has done for us and garner there from, from there strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow based on who God has been to us so He will continue to be as Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. We rehearse the faithfulness of God, the death in giving Christ Jesus as He promised to do so that the whole world will know, hey, Jesus came for us Christians. We love Him. We worship Him because of what He has done for us, this miraculous work. We memorialize this even for the sake of non-Christians. But we also memorialize this for our own sake. And in the institution of the Passover, which was another memorial, by the way, 
which obviously more clearly and directly corresponds with the Lord's table. Interestingly, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 26, it's put to us this same way. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. So, whenever these memorials are instituted, there is this assumption that the kids are going to ask, what does this mean? And if you have kids, they've probably asked you already, what does this mean? Why do we eat this bread? Why do we drink this cup? And we have this opportunity then, as the Old Covenant Israelites did on the annual Feast of the Passover, as the Israelites did with the memorial stone set up at Gilgal, we have this opportunity to rehearse and recount the faithful and mighty acts of God for the sake of our children, in order that our God may be their God, and that they may walk in faith in the next generation, the way that God has taught us to walk in faith here and now. And so there's also this application that we should be doing evangelism and proclaiming God's mighty deeds. We should be ourselves remembering and rehearsing what God has done for us in order that we may fear Him forever. And then that we should be even evangelizing and discipling our own kids and being faithful to tell them about what God has done for us in order that they may worship the God of Israel along with us. So let us walk by faith that God is leading. Let us do the sacred well, consecrating time, energy, resources, etc. unto God as we have responsibility to do so and opportunity to do so. Let us not fear, but eagerly progress on our way to the promised land. Let us evangelize and disciple along the way, including our own children, speaking about all that God has done and will continue to do for His people.